Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to be reading a few verses here, but we're going to basically stick to verses 1 through 3 once we get started. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And the title of the message is, Which Christ? Which Christ? God, who at many times and various ways spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, he has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory, in the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, You are my son, this day I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings in the first begotten into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But unto the Son, he said, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. And you, Lord, in the beginning have laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. We'll stop the reading there and we'll go back and look at uh, verses 1 through 3 here in a minute. That's my purpose here this morning to speak as uh, clear as possible. We did a message last week talking about plainness of speech. I emphasized that pretty heavy last week. And of course, we always think that way, and especially this morning, we want to talk with... Uh, plainness of speech and see what the scripture says about this important matter. Whenever we talk about, uh, for lack of a better phrase, uh, spiritual matters or eternal life, creation, the gospel, salvation, final judgment, heaven and hell, and anything else of, of this nature, of that importance that has to do with spiritual matters, we have to remember and we have to keep in mind that it is God who has determined these things, their definitions, their meanings, as they are taught in his holy word. So we can't take it upon ourselves. We can't have any type of a personal bias towards the things in the scripture concerning driving it with our own opinion, our own previous religion, our own tradition, our own human philosophy. We can't just pass around hearsay and myth. This is something that is separate from us in reference to we go to it, the truth, to get the information from the truth outside of ourselves. The truth does not come from within ourselves. We come into the world with a problem 
in that we're sinners. We don't know the truth. And actually by nature, we're, we're hostile toward the truth. God takes the truth and brings us to himself through um, the mediator Christ using the means of the truth through the power of the Spirit. So this is something that um, I, I can say that all day. I can put out warnings about we shouldn't do this. And it's what everybody does before they're converted and they don't know it. Because everyone is deceived before they know the truth. But I had to say it anyway because the scripture says it. So having said that, and some of us have passed from death unto life, spiritual life, we are born again. And having known this and what I just said about we, we can't be biased toward, toward the truth, I think it boils down to this. We see people are doing this, and we need to, to watch out for this even in our own church, but we need to be able to identify it outside the church. But people want to, for some reason, divorce or separate the truth itself from God himself. As if everybody automatically somehow knows God and then the truth comes along and they say, well, that uh, I don't know about that. And then they want to modify the truth. But God does not allow us to modify the truth about himself because the truth is connected to him. We can't tinker with the truth. It's not a buffet where, you know, you just, if you don't like cauliflower, you don't eat cauliflower. You know, it's that all the counsel of God zeroes in on the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace. And we cannot dissect or divorce the truth from the person of God, especially in reference to what he himself says about himself. I mean, that's, that's pretty important. And I think you know that because I would ask all of you this question. And I don't care what it is. I don't care if it has to do with your past, what it has to do with your current title, whether it be your job or things you do or what you represent, your reputation, or the things you've made or built or accumulated. I don't, I don't care. You just, everything about you. Do you like it when somebody lies about who you are or what you've done or misrepresents you or perverts something about what you've, especially what you said? I mean, we know we are rotten. We are sinners. So somebody can't really say too much bad about me. You already know I'm pretty bad, right? But something that I've said and I know I've said and somebody says, well, you said this. And I'm thinking that is the total opposite. I mean, was that in print and it had Scott Price under it? Because if you search the internet, there's all kind of Scott Prices. There's one that's uh, in our county, and he has, he has a wife with my wife's first name. <laughs> so it's the same couple in the same county, and I've had people call me thinking I was him. There is another Christ. You can name the name of Jesus all day long. You can even call him Lord. And one guy in Matthew 7 did, all the way up into the judgment, he was deceived. And he said, but Lord, Lord, called him by his proper name. Christ said, I, I don't know who you are. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. I never knew you. So you yourself know that it's not, it's not appealing or attractive to have somebody pervert what you say or what you represent. Or maybe somebody in your family or somebody you look up to even. 
somebody will say something. Uh, I mentioned last week, it's, it's weird how that people get so riled up. I see it all the time at work. People start insulting their football team, and they almost want to fight. But yet, uh, you can say anything you want about God. It doesn't matter. You can pervert his character as long as don't mess with my football team or my relatives. Everything's cool. So <laughs> think about how much more important it is. This God whom we say we reverence and we worship, who gives us eternal life and breath to breathe, to defend his character and to properly represent who he is, defend his reputation. I mean, by nature, we have a bad reputation. That's why I glory in my new identity in Christ. I'm going to be found in him not having my own righteousness. I'm not accepted in anything I do. I'm accepted in the person of Christ now. And that's good news to me. So this idea is directly and vitally tied to who he is as Almighty God. You don't have to turn there. I've got this uh, short verse written down here. John 17, 3 says, And this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, knowing God, who he is, and Christ whom God has sent, who is God also. And we'll talk about that in a second. So if the character of God, the person of God, is perverted and misrepresented, it's simply considered by God himself to be idolatry. In other words, God is saying, when you misrepresent him or lie about him, he's saying, you're not talking about me. You're talking about an idol of your imagination. You don't know me. God's people know whom he is because God reveals to them who he is through the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, not just who he is, but God's chief purpose and central focus, if you would just boil it down, condense it down, if you look into scripture, this is, collectively, you can, you can gather this, that his chief focus is the purpose to glorify himself in the redemption of his people through the person and work of Christ. And the person work of Christ is his eternal, chosen, anointed son, Christ Jesus the Lord. So that's his focus, the person and the work of Christ and the glory that comes out of that. And I just want to just emphasize that God will not share his glory. That glory is intact. He protects it. He loves it. He guards it. This is a big deal to him and he will not share his glory. He will not compromise on the truth of himself in Christ, the gospel and grace and his glory as presented in by and through the Lord Jesus Christ. He will not. So God clearly says that he's the only true God. We just read a verse. That's just one out of many. He makes a distinction between himself from idols. He does it all throughout the Old Testament. I'm God. There's none else. There's none like me. There's none beside me. And then he talks about what he does. He talks about what they can't do. Isaiah 46 is, is a pretty strong one, 9 through 11. That's probably my favorite in the Old Testament that makes that distinction. Also, uh, the previous chapter, 45, talks about how that uh, these people pray to a God that cannot save. And he talks about that they have to pick their idol up and move him and set them up. They're deaf, dumb, and blind. They can't hear. 
Well, they might as well worship you if you got to do the work, right? And then that's the way false religion is today. You're doing the thing that makes the difference. So you, in your mind, you're the one activating this, exerting the energy. You get the credit, the glory, the honor for making the difference between heaven and hell. That's no God. You've made yourself out to be your own God. So upon the authority of God's word, he tells us also that, that this Christ that we're getting ready to distinguish is the only mediator, the only go-between between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Christ himself said that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except exclusively through him alone. So this quickly narrows down any hope of eternal salvation to only one and only one person who has ever walked the face of the earth, who has ever had anything to do with salvation. It is this one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the only answer, the only way, and anyone that is to compete against him or any God that is compared to him as a false God and those that do not trust in him and come to him for all of their salvation, God condemns all other ways, all other gods. That's just the long and short of it. I know the exclusive, uh, this is hard to say, exclusivity of Christ is very offensive to people. He's the only way. And people sit here all day. You mean to tell me, and they start naming other religions, other gods, other cults. That's what I mean to tell you. That's what Christ said. Take it up with him. He's the judge. So in short, you must believe on him, be found in him, accepted in the beloved, in Christ, with his righteousness for your complete salvation on the day of judgment, or you'll stand condemned in your own self-righteousness. So that's the simple truth as the word of God sums it up. It's, it's clear. It's simple. It is and it's my obligation, if I care for people and love people, to tell them the truth. Most people interpret this as hatred and bigotry and narrow-mindedness to say what I've said so far in the, uh, in the introduction. But it's uh, like we've compared it physically before to other things. If somebody's house is on fire, we just don't knock on the door and say, You okay? You'll be okay not knowing maybe the whole half of the other house is on fire. See you later. You'll be okay. And just not warning them. Spiritually, we cannot pat people on the back and promote them in their false religion when they are in a state of denying the truth. So this truth, it has not changed. It's always been the case. It does not change and it will not change. This has always been the truth, that Christ is only and always been the way. So this subject, I'm trying to show uh, how serious it is. This subject of eternal spiritual matters is the most important thing in this short life. And this life is short. I mean, you just blink your eyes and turn around and you're old. It's the most important thing to ponder, to talk about, and to seek answers to. And this Christ that I'm going to describe is the one who will either be worshipped by you and be your Lord, or he will condemn you 
as your Lord. It's just there's no in-between. In the meantime, the rest of everything else going in your life, as boring as your life may be or as busy as your life may be, either way, anything else compared to this Christ is an insignificant, giant distraction. I don't know if you guys agree with that or believe that. The rest of everything going on in your life besides this Christ, compared to this Christ, is an insignificant, giant distraction. Does that mean that we just quit our job and not take care of our family? That, that's not what that means. I'm talking about our priorities. Priority of life and thought and energy. So it's this exclusive Christ that I'm going to uh, try to distinguish this morning for you. Now look at our text here. This is probably going to be a two-parter. Seemingly the first part will deal with the person of Christ. And the second part will deal with the work of Christ. But there will be some blending with both back and forth. Look at the first verse there, Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. God, who at many times in various ways... Spoken times past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now, the prophets referring to the Old Testament writings of the prophets who were inspired by God to write his truth in the Old Testament. God used the prophets to show Christ in spiritual types, pictures, and shadows, pointing to him who is the substance. This Christ who is the coming Messiah. We know that Moses wrote of him. Christ said that in the Gospels. When he was talking to the religious Jewish scribes and Pharisees. And, and he said, you know, they were claiming Moses as their authority. He said, Moses wrote of me. He said, you guys, you, you can't see it. Later, Paul talked about a, a veil that was over their eyes. That they were blind to seeing Christ in the. Old Testament scriptures. Christ said that Abraham saw his day, the day of Christ in the future, as being the Messiah. Abraham saw my day and was glad, he said. And he believed on him. So this is Abraham of the Old Testament. Christ told the uh, Pharisees, there I think it was in John 5, he said, you search the scriptures, referring to the Old Testament. And in them, in the scriptures, you think you have eternal life. But they, the scriptures, are they that testify of me. They were written about me. You just can't see it. The apostle John said in uh, John chapter 1 that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. And Christ said that it is written in the whole volume of the book, Concerning him coming to do the will of the Father. So the whole volume of the Old Testament was written concerning one thing. This Christ is going to come. This Christ is the theme of the Old Testament. And this Christ is the future coming Messiah. And the Old Testament saints looked forward in faith, by faith to him. And were believers. Were the children of God. The saints of God in the Old Testament. The Old Testament. And as time went on, we know that more and more truth was progressively revealed as the truth was gathered up. And then we know in the New Testament, 
there was even more clarity. And that is my first point, that number one, Christ, this Christ, is the final authority and prophet concerning truth. The final authoritative prophet. Look at verse 2. God has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. If you want to turn to some of these verses, you can. Matthew chapter 17. In the context here, it's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration, as it's called, where Moses and Elijah were present with Christ as some of the disciples were trying to stay awake there. They were falling asleep. And we talked about this before, and we compared these three, Christ, Moses, and Elijah. And of course, Moses and Elijah wrote of Christ. They knew to bow to Christ as preeminent. And uh, there were some comments about uh, from some of the disciples about after seeing these three, it's like, this is cool. We're going to build like three altars to these three. And before the sentence was even finished, God said this in verse 5. And behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, this is God speaking, speaking of his son who was there with Moses and Elijah, being looked upon by the disciples. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. He didn't say, you know, Moses and Elijah's got more seniority. They're much older. They wrote a long time ago. And we know, of course, the oldest is the best, right? He didn't say that. He said what matched up in harmony with our text in Hebrews, that Christ now, authoritatively, in these last days, has the final word as the authoritative prophet. Everything in the Old Covenant pointed to him anyway, and here he is now. And he's going to lay it out even more clearer. And he is the one who is all these things and has done all these things that all these writings are about anyway. Go to Peter, because Peter was the one that had this idea. Second Peter. Peter had this idea to build these three altars to these Moses, Elijah, and Christ. So Peter here, I guess, recalls this as he writes this. Second Peter in chapter 1, in verse 17, speaking of Christ, he says in verse 17, For he received honor and glory from God the Father when he was born to him a voice from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now we know the the original one that we just read says, hear him, right? Peter didn't exactly say that here, but he implies it with the rest of the uh, what he says. And we have heard his voice being born from heaven, being with him in the holy mountain. We also have a more sure word of prophecy to which you do well to take heed as to a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns 
and the day star arises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture came into being of its own private interpretation, the prophecy was not born at any time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke, being born along by the Spirit. Now notice that in verse 21, the first part, for prophecy was not born at any time by the will of man. Now this is the modern King James, and I'm sure some other versions say it a little bit differently, but it's not born at any time by the will of man. Now this is what I was indicating earlier. We don't have the liberty to invent our own ideas about the truth, tweak the truth, change the truth, make the truth better. The truth cannot be better. If you try to improve the truth, you're making it worse. You, you can't, you become a liar. The truth was there before you. The truth is more important than you. If you smack up against it and try to adjust it and alter it, you have just become a liar. Right? So we can't have, again, we can't have that bias. We can't have this tradition and infuse those things into the truth and adjust it and make it ours. The truth is only ours in the sense is that we agree with it, submit to it. God has given a revelation of it to us. But the truth is not ours in that, hey, I'm going to infuse part of me into it and I'm going to make it kind of like a my own blend. Can't do it. There's warnings against it. So we have here knowledge about the authority of Christ, the truth not being changed. This is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Godhead in the Trinity, who is himself the living Word of God, and he is the truth. He said, I am the truth. He has also always been that way. He says he's the great I am, capital I, capital A, capital M. This is his name, which means the eternal present God Almighty. He always was he always is, and he always will be. Therefore, that truth about him that concerns him doesn't change. It never did. It was always the same, just like he was always the same today, yesterday, and forever. He was God and was with God from the beginning. That's the way it's stated in John 1. Don't be confused when it says that he was God. And that doesn't imply that he isn't now, but he was. That's saying he was from the beginning and still is. He came down from heaven to speak for God. In other words, to be the mediator. He represents God. And he represents his people to God. He's the mediator between God and man. The only one. The only one available. So Christ, who is the Son of God. Let me use those interchangeably was appointed by the Father to be the final prophet, to speak in these last days to God's people. And Christ's revelation of truth, we see that he's much more clearer as the revelation progresses throughout history. In the fullness of time, here he is now. He himself is on the scene, and he speaks himself for the Father as a mediator concerning the Father, himself, and the Spirit. And he makes it more clear than the Old Testament prophets did. That doesn't take away any authority from the Old Testament writings of Scripture. It just clarifies. It's a, it's a clear commentary 
on what they said because here he is, the substance. They talked in types, pictures, and shadows, and now here he is on the scene. And then, of course, the apostles that wrote about him after he resurrected and ascended. There was clarity there about Christ. Christ himself in John 6 said the words that I speak, they're spirit and they are life. And he asserts his authority as given to him by his father when he says, if you want to turn to uh, John 17, John 17 and verse 1. Think of these verses, I think we read over them quickly and kind of forget that these are foundational verses that have to do with establishing the authority of God by what he says about himself having authority. This is the uh, what's being called a high priestly prayer, the prayer before Christ died. He says, Jesus, in verse 1, John 17, Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour is come. This is referring to, this is what I came to do. I'm, I'm about ready to be crucified. This is what I've come to do to be a sacrifice. It's getting ready to happen. The hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. Notice this. Even as you have given him, talking to his father about himself, authority over all flesh. That covers everybody. Authority over all flesh. So that, notice this, that he should give eternal life to all you have given him. This is talking about the election of God's people and the turning over of those people to Christ so that Christ could be their shepherd, their representative, their mediator, their substitute, their propitiation, their savior, everything. So it talks about he has authority over all flesh first, and then he says, so that should give eternal life to all those you have given him. This is talking about a specific people. These are the elect. And then we just read earlier, verse 3, that comes right after this, and this is life eternal, right? And that is who gets that life eternal, is these people that the Father has chosen, has loved, and has given to Christ. Those are the people that will know him because God will reveal himself to them because Christ has the authority of all flesh to do so with his people. Similar language in uh, Matthew 28, if you want to turn there. Matthew 28 and verse 18. This is uh, being called the Great Commission here. Uh, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and he spoke to them saying, Look at this. All authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. That's everywhere. That just matches what he said in John 17. Authority over all flesh. And he says, therefore, because of that, in other words, go, he's telling his disciples, go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things. Look at this. It's another authority thing. Whatever I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always until the end of the world. Amen. So he has all authority given to him. And he tells them to teach them what he told them to teach him authoritatively. He didn't say, you know, I'm going to 
a sin and go away. And uh, you guys just, just pretty much use your best judgment. Do what you want. Tweak it. Change it. Put your own splash personality in there. He didn't say that. Teach the things that I commanded you to teach. In other words, that doctrine that matches my doctrine. Don't alter it or adjust it. We know this later to be the Apostles' Doctrine as it's spoken of in Acts. While you're in Matthew, go to chapter 7. Some more language about authority. In verse 28, Matthew 7, 28. Now this is after we, we hammer on this passage here. We just I just quoted a while ago, but Lord, Lord, have we not done these things in your name? And then Christ says, depart from me that work iniquity. This is after this. And he talks about those that build their house on the sand versus build their house on the rock. And then when he was all done, it says in verse 28, and it happened when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his doctrine. Is teaching. Why? It says, for or because he taught them as one having authority. He did, right? We know he did. He said he did, and he said that authority was given him of his father. He says, he taught him as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes didn't really have much authority. They, they, they were weak. They contradicted themselves. Christ pretty much tore them up in a lot of reasoning and debate. It wasn't too hard. They walked away a lot of times without things to say. It says that they, they left and could not answer a word. So Christ, who is the truth of God, who is the word of God, which can be translated, he is the logic of God, as he dealt with these people that opposed him, he laid out his truth in an authoritative manner, and he shut people down. And if those left who thought they weren't shut down, they'll be shut down at judgment. And he just said that a few verses earlier in this text. And he says, depart from me that work iniquity. They're deceived. Go to John 10. I know we're turning to a lot of uh, verses. I kind of just want to lay down some text to these points. John 10 and verse 17. This is the sheep chapter where he talks about uh, he's the great shepherd and he has these sheep that he has been in, entrusted with, referring to the ones we had just read about, the ones that the Father gave him. He says he lays down his life. He loves his sheep. He lays down his life for his sheep. His sheep hear his voice. They come to him. Nobody can take them out of my father's hands that come to him. They won't hear the voice of a stranger, but they'll hear my voice, the shepherd. Verse 17 says, Therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Now notice this here. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down from myself. Here it is. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Now remember in uh, Hebrews 5, you don't have to turn there, but it talked about the priesthood and it compared the Old Covenant priesthood to Christ. And it said the priests in the Old Covenant didn't have the authority 
or the liberty to just jump into the priesthood themselves and be a self-appointed priest. There were certain qualifications. You had to be from a certain tribe and so on. And then as you performed as a priest, there were certain things you had to do or you'll die. That's how serious it was. And that pictured that Christ's work is perfect. And if he didn't do it right, he would not raise. So he says here again, he just keeps hammering on this thing of authority. He has the authority because of two things, who he is and that it was given to him of his father when he submitted himself in this humility as he came down to do the work for the Father. So, this is the Christ that we worship. This is the Christ of the Scripture. So far, if there's anything that has uh, blatantly contradicted this, and there are many denominations that blatantly contradict what we've looked at, then it's a false Christ. Point number two, this Christ was the official heir of all things. Look at the second part of verse 2 in our text, Hebrews 1, 2, the second half. Whom he was appointed heir of all things. Now, stay there. I want to quote a verse. You can take the reference down. We're going to look at another verse in our immediate context after this. But in the eternal, in the eternal covenant of grace, before time, before anything was created, were the Trinity schemed salvation and talked about it and formed a covenant. At least this is the way the language is talked about in the scripture. We know it's eternal and we can even really technically say it didn't even have a start. It just always was because it was in the mind of God. But there's a conversation in that covenant, in that language where the Father says to Christ, ask of me. This is Psalm 2.8. Ask of me and I shall give you the nations. King James says heathen. He's talking about the Gentiles. For your inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. And we know that Christ was Lord God, eternal God in spirit form before he took on flesh. He was the eternal God that always was, that was in fellowship with the Father, as it says in John 1, 1 through 3, 3, that he was in fellowship and communion with God face to face throughout all eternity. And then as he came down, and we're going to deal with this more later, he, he himself did not change, but his purpose involved him taking on flesh. So there was a, there was a point in time where he humbled himself and he had to do this performance and as he did that, when people looked at him like regular human beings like us would look at him, we couldn't just look at him physically and say, that's the eternal son of God. And automatically, no, he has the authority and I better submit to him. There had to be words coming from Christ talking about that and maybe works or wonders or miracles happening. And then God had to cause these people to see and submit to that because other people alongside those people resisted. Some picked up stones to stone him. But here there was an earning. And I want us to see, uh, we talked about this in our Real Lordship uh, series, that God, in the person of Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, had all the rights that the Father had. 
And he was king in that sense. He was the Lord God, King, God Almighty, eternal, unchangeable, all the attributes of God. But as he came down to earth, we see that he dropped off his reputation that he had the right to hold on to, but as he presented himself to the world, he, in his humility, lowered himself down to a capacity to perform this work. And as he did that, he merited certain things. And he merited this mediatorial lordship. And that's why, as he performed it, and he, he merited it, as he ascended up and was exalted, he sits on the throne in reference to that kingship of what he earned by his work. This is part of his inheritance. We know because we are his brethren, as it says later in uh, Hebrews, he's not ashamed to call us his brethren. We have an inheritance through him. We are joint heirs with him. He's given us all things. So maybe uh, part two, we'll look at some more of that. But in our immediate context, look at verse four. It uses this word, inheritance. Being made so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, speaking of the angels. As fancy and as powerful and as uh, amazing as angels are, I know a lot of people get nuts over angels, thinking about angels, talking about angels, they got statues of angels, and, and most of that is, is put in the minds by traditional paintings that are, you know, more than likely not accurate. But it's just, and they've got people turning into angels after the day, all kind of crazy stuff. Scripture says we're going to judge angels in the end. Uh, we see people kind of in the, in the New Testament seeing an angel and then bowing down, worshiping that angel. An angel says, <laughs> no, get up. I'm not the one. You know? We need to get these things in our minds straight now. Paul said that, that if me or any angel that comes preaching another gospel... Let him be accursed. He said, I preached the truth to you. He said, even he, Paul knew the truth was more important than him. He said, even if I preach another gospel, let me be accursed. He says the same thing about angels. So the truth of the gospel must be held firm. And the person of the gospel, Christ, who is the one to be worshipped, who angels worship, and who we ought to worship instead of angels, if we can keep these things in our minds, we won't be surprised if we, you know, subjects come up and we start thinking like kind of off kilter. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that excited about angels after I read things like this, you know. We worship Christ. An angel is a created being. I'm not going to worship a created being. It's forbidden. So as 
Christ, the God-man mediator, he earned an inheritance through his humbling himself unto death, as it says in Philippians 2, even the death of the cross. Point number three, this Christ is the God of creation. This Christ is the God of creation. We know that only God can create something out of nothing, and Christ is that one. And you can have um, people doing counterfeit miracles. You can have magicians, and we see that type of stuff. But they didn't. Nobody else has had their hand in creating the world. Christ spoke it into existence. John one one says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, notice this. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's pretty clear. It didn't just say he made everything. It goes the extra mile and said not anything that was made it rules out anybody else of making anything, in other words. Without him was not anything made that was made. He made it all. Colossians 1.16, if you want to turn there, it's just one verse, I can read it. it. says, for all things were created by him. Some verses say in him. The things in heavens and the things on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, Notice this, all things were created by him and for him. So he created all things. It's, it's easy to see. Our text says it. These other two texts say it. I'm sure there's others that say it too. Notice the last one I read. It kind of puts a little more emphasis on not just he created all things, but they're for him. He owns everything, in other words. He has the authority. He rules. He owns Everything and everybody. He rules supreme. And everyone has to answer to him as a result. Point number four. This Christ is co-equal with the Father, having the same character attributes. In our text, in verse three, it says, Who being in the brightness of his glory, in the express image of his person. This language is pretty precise and pretty clear. So the eternal Son of God, as we had mentioned before, was in times past in the form of an invisible spirit before he took on human flesh. Some people, first of all, a lot of people don't even believe that Christ is God. And then once they hear that, they say they're kind of confused about the existence of the Son of God before the flesh part. Well, he was, as I just said, he was in the form of an invisible spirit before he took on flesh. Here we see that he is as much God as his father is God. He was not created. He was not any younger than his father. Now, see, human beings hearing the language of father-son can't put that together, right? Well, let me add to it. The eternal Son of God had no mother. Uh, that gets one big giant denomination upset. Melchizedek in the Old 
Testament was brought up in Hebrews as a type and picture and shadow of Christ. This guy came out of nowhere. It doesn't mention his mother or father. It's a type of Christ. The eternal Son of God in spirit form did not have a mother. I mean, we, we're familiar with Mary, but that's only connected to his physical body. But God the Son, eternal spirit, was uncreated. He was not born from anyone. And I tie that to the fact that he is just as old as the Father, eternal. So Christ was not begotten of the Father in a spiritual or physical sense either way. We've talked about this before. We've not spent a lot of time in it, but he was begotten of the Father in a declarative sense. He declared him to be the Son. We talked about that in the Eternal Covenant of Grace section in our Chosen in Christ section, I think. And we even before that, we've talked about it. So as Christ agreed in the Eternal Covenant of Grace before time, there was a voluntary and temporary time to be born of a woman, be born under the law. This is where he, it looks like to the human eye, something's different about this one. He's taking on a new form, and it doesn't mean that he changed. This is part of the purpose and the plan as the plan of God unfolds from eternity and is made manifest in time. This time was 33 years in which he would submit himself in humility, and as it says in Philippians 2, to take on the form of and be the form of a servant to fulfill the eternal covenant promises that he agreed upon before time. Now, think about that, that part right there about submitting himself, humbling himself, um, setting aside his reputation and taking on the form of a servant. Now, think about the eternal Son of God. It doesn't match, does it, naturally? But this is something that he volunteered to do. What does he deserve? He doesn't deserve to be a servant. He's, he's worshipped. He's reverenced. He is on the throne. He steps down off of his throne. This, this just emphasizes and magnifies the voluntariness of this work, the promises that he made in the covenant, what had to take place to be like his people, and the fact that this had to, it had to take place. It had to go through the means of everything. He had to have a body. He had to be a sacrifice. Again, we've talked about this before. God just didn't say, we're just going to pretend. We're just going to go through the motions and pretend. No, all this is real. This thing of, of God taking the sin of his, his people that he's chosen and putting it to the account of Christ, imputing it, transferring it, charging it to his account, this is real, and it ha he has to have all these things in place for this to get to the end. It's not fake. It's not playtime. It's real. It's not pretend. All these things have to happen. They're agreed upon in the covenant. They're prophesied in the old covenant. And here is the time we're seeing them take place. This 33 years of submission and servanthood. 
It shows the love of Christ for his people and for his father in doing this. I mean, even you guys in different things that you do, maybe you've worked yourself up to a certain position at work, say for example, and something happens at work and you think, well, that's a very menial task. I'm in this position now. Why do I have to stoop down and do it? I didn't do it, right? Let's get Joe Blow over here, this new guy. Call him, make him do it. You see, you see how that we set ourselves up in a certain authoritative position if we have people under us or if we have seniority. And it's like, because we're all about ourselves anyway, me, myself, and I, it's like, I don't want to have to do that. Somebody else that is lower than me, right? We think that way. Get him to do it. Well, here's Christ, the one that created all things, that owns all things. And it was between him and his father that said, this is the way we're going to set it up. And you know what? This perfectly harmonizes with this idea of my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Right? I mean, we just want to think about the things Christ went through when he was on earth. I mean, I, as a sinful human being, know what I would do. I would be destroying people right and left. That's just our nature, to vindicate ourselves. And that just was not the case with Christ. And, yeah, I just can't hardly get into this in knowing. It's because Christ is sinless and perfect. He could do this, and I, and I can't. But he did this. He was able to deal with people in such a way that he just didn't smoke them like we might. And uh, it's, it's an amazing humility that we see. And that's what it took to save his people. And that's what he was willing to do to save his people. So he made himself of no reputation. It's a, it's a reputation he deserved to retain and keep and show off. But he didn't do it. He lowered himself. This is what we call his condescension. He lowered himself to be the likeness of his people, having a human body, dwell among all these sinners, put up with sinners in this sinful, fallen world to do the will of the Father. Fifthly, this Christ controls all things by his power and providence. Look at the second half of verse 3 of Hebrews 1. And upholding all things... By the word of his power. You know, in this world, a lot of people don't, of course, believe that God created the world. Much less that Christ, as God, was the creator. But then, add to it this, that he upholds all these things that created. In other words, through his providence, he controls these things. And then, you know, the question may come up, are all things, as in events that take place, are they predetermined and controlled by God? Oh, people hate this. Because it takes control out of their hands. Yes, they are all predetermined and controlled by the power of God. Here it says, by the word of his power. Let me read this quick verse, uh, Colossians 1.17. This is a strong one. And he, Christ, 
is before all things. Now, you could say in time, he's before all things. And you can say in preference. Just like this is verse 17, I'm reading verse 18 is back on the wall, that in all things he might have preeminence. So in this sense here, we could say that he's before all things in that he is preferred before all things, right? Both are true. But the latter, latter part says, and by him, by Christ, all things consist. And the word consist means they stick together. Christ controls them by his power. If he decides to let them unstick and explode, come apart, let the atoms change and things, whether it be a volcano, whether it be a tsunami, whether it be a person's life. It says, I'm God and there's none else. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. I am God. I do all these things. He is in control of everything. He is in control of each birth, each death, and each one has an appointment. And after death, there's appointed unto man judgment after he dies. He's in control of everything without exception, whether we think it's good or bad. And this verse here is clear that he does it, not only does it, but through a means of the word of his power. We know if you look in Genesis, you don't have to turn there, but we know that he spoke the world into existence. He said, he said let there be light, and there was light. Here is the same means. It's his own spoken word. This is how he causes people too, by the way. The picture there, the spiritual picture is, he says, Lazarus, come forth, the one who was dead. Lazarus didn't say, well, hold on a minute. Let me exercise my free will. Um, I got a, I got, a, how dare you bust into my death chamber here and tell me what to do. He came forth. And that's what we do in the day of his powers. He calls us by the gospel through the power of his spirit. He calls the sheep. My sheep hear my voice. He calls them irresistibly and powerfully. And by that time, it's too late. We irresistibly, willingly come to him as a result. It's his people. It's the plan. And that appointment through the effectual call is fixed, and it will happen. All that, God, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. So he runs them. He's controlled them. He runs them all. So I'm going to stop there because that's, uh, I, I went an hour, and this is right at our last point, which will be our next point next week. And it goes over into the work of Christ in connection with his death, what he accomplished in his death. Any questions or comments before we uh, are dismissed? Which Christ? That's the question. There is a difference. These things that we said to him uh, about him today in this message are opposed at every turn in all the religions out there. I don't care if it's under the name of Christianity. I don't care. I hear it all the time. Opposition to just about everything I said. This Christ is offensive. It makes people nervous. They have no control. It is, it is one that has to be submitted to, bowed down to, and a lot of wrong ideas in people's minds have to be torn down, rooted up, and God does that with his people. He'll, through the dynamite of his gospel, the power of his gospel, he'll explode those false ideas, root them up, he'll put the truth in its place, he'll draw his people to himself, and they love it.
They don't fight it. And they worship this God. They know the difference. And they repent from all other false ways. And it's all by grace. It doesn't come from within themselves. It can't because of their condition. 